Hey everybody, welcome to We've Got Ward, a Planet Productions podcast series where we expertly dissect and discuss Ward while those return to the world of parahumans. My name is Matt Freeman, and this is my zombie baby Scott Daly. Go, go, cock. You know, um, <laughs> I, I wrote down here, Matt, in uh-huh. the script, Scott makes zombie baby noises. Yeah. And I guess um, past Scott just assumed that future Scott knew what that would sound like um, yeah and he he let me down i just think me. it's endearing that you think that babies say goo goo gaga i don't have any of those so do they not i mean what's the i feel like if they that start you know if they're to then they can so i okay. guess probably somewhere some babies have <laughs> As you said, this is the podcast where you and I eagerly dive into Wild Bo's world of post-apocalyptic collectibles, pissed-off battle angels, and alien-based death powers as we analyze and interpret this ongoing web serial. This week, it's finally time to wrap up Arc 5 Shadow as we discuss 5.Y, Jonathan's interlude. Then, after taking a bit of time to discuss Arc 5 as a whole, we'll move right into Arc 6 Pitch with Chapter 6.1. Yes, I know that the title of this episode says arc five final, but I mean, that's still technically true, right? Yeah. Yeah. This is the solution we've settled on everyone. Yeah. We're just going to pretend like the title does not match the episode, which I don't know if that's a great, it works. We're going, we're we're doing it. Compromise is the one that no one is happy with. I think I heard (laughs) that somewhere. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 like confusing the titles would be not worth it so like, yeah it'd be it'd be a mess like people arc, will figure it out arc five part final arc <laughs> six part one in the same no that's that's terrible it's <laughs> awful i like that we're just punting that problem till next week when we have to decide if it's part one or part two of arc six. Oh man i didn't even think of that yeah well m- moving on yeah um i'm pretty excited to talk about these ones matt uh the interlude to wrap up this arc was really really great and i have a lot i have a lot of of things to say about it and then we get into arc six which which sees um things things continue down a path that we saw but but maybe we kind of i think the cool thing about this chapter is we can kind of maybe see the themes of the arc starting to to show themselves a little bit it's tough to know that but um but it's uh, some good chapters i think yeah i feel like um, and I don't feel like we're reaching and saying this, that there are distinct thematic differences between what happens in arc five and what we see starting to happen in arc six. Um, yeah. There's a different momentum to it. There's a different emphasis on, on the things that are happening. There are different kinds of consequences to things. Um, again, could, there's very little. We don't know much about arc six yet, but uh, I think there's something to be read into there. Absolutely. So some announcements before we go on. The We've Got Ward fan art contest number three has a winner. Our, our <gasps> patrons have voted. And Scott, uh, what's what's in the envelope? Will you please give me a drum roll? I don't know if the mic's going to pick that up, but we're going to say yes. Uh, the winner of the third quarterly sort of fan art contest is uh, Lawn Sheep. Once again, one with his photo of the entire group of misfit toys in a cool little, um, it looks kind of like a V, but it also could be like a W for wards. And it's a really great picture. Um, it's, you can go right now, right now, as we speak, um, 
you can look on the show notes or you can go to dailyplanetfilms.com and you'll see the winner. You'll see the runner up, uh, which is uh, Jess's drawing headquarters, which shows the Misfit Toys in their headquarters. And then you can see all the other art we got. It's all there. They were all really wonderful. But uh, congratulations to our winner, Lon Sheep, who now has won two in a row. Matt? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. Congratulations. And, yeah. and, and we'll get that uh, that prize sent over. Yeah, Matt. We'll do that. <laughs> the, Wait, joke, that? the joke is that I'm dragging my feet on doing that. It's yeah. not a very funny joke, actually. Uh, um, well, I'll figure it out. Uh, here's here's the thing I wanted to do while we're here, though. Um, if if you've if you've already gone and checked out the post where we put the winners in it, um, you will see me ask the same question there. But we've now had the same person win two mu two quarters two contests in a row. Which I I mean, I think Lon Cheap is completely deserving of that honor. I love their artwork. Obviously, we like their artwork because we have have commissioned them to do our our show uh, image for this show, and they did it for the last show as well. And uh, in the future, we might have them do some artwork for some of our other shows. They're not even worm related. So mm -hmm. uh, we, we love their artwork. They're absolutely deserving of the prize. But we also recognize that there might be this perception that if someone keeps winning over and over again, that why should other people even enter the contest? Um, and that's something we definitely don't want, because the whole nature of this thing is to kind of encourage the great artists we have. And, and as you can see, all of these artworks we got, we there's some ridiculously talented people here. So we're considering making adjustments to the rules going forward. Um, but we want your feedback first. We want to know what you guys think. What do you guys think of the contest as it is? Um, do you have anything you would want us to change? Um, is there anything you think we could be doing better with it? Um, let us know. Uh, send us an email uh, at uh, gotwormpod at gmail.com and just let us give us some feedback. And we will take all that into advisement when we're looking at the rules and, and deciding if if we need to change something or if we don't need to change something. Um, we, we, we kind of think of this as like the contest is a uh, community thing because it's funded by our patrons. Those are the people funding the, these, these prizes. So we want it to feel like it's your contest. So, so let us know. We, we love feedback. Yeah. There's, there's, we're really open-minded to how we could change things. So yeah, please let yeah, us we're, know. We're really just kind of figuring that out, this out as we go. We've never, we've never had to run contests like this before. So we've had some ideas that we've tried in the past. Um, some ideas as far as how to pick, the the topic um if there should be a topic theme or not um yeah so just, just let us know what you think yeah all right moving on to the community spotlight where we read what people wrote from last week's thread first we're going to be focusing on the discussion question from last week which if you'll recall was compare and contrast cauldron under dr mother and the remnants of cauldron under numberine uh, referring of course to the interlude last last uh, week where we talked about how number man and citrine now appear to be heading at least some fraction of cauldron. And we got a lot of great comments this week. We're going to be taking a little bit of a different approach because I feel like um, an increasingly large portion of this show was being spent on discussing the, the, the audience feedback. And while that's fun, I feel like there's a, a lack of um, a, a sort of logical through line in those discussions which makes it really hard to pay attention to so i decided that we would move through this section a little bit more quickly while still trying to give everyone kind of their moment in the spotlight so user stuck in reddit factory says the most important uh so, so first of all uh the most important thing you're going to get out of today's podcast is this user's 
name for the new cauldron, which is Beaker, uh, which is just the most perfect name for um, the new <laughs> streamlined, sleek, Damascus-wearing version of, of cauldron. I'm uh, so mad that I didn't think of this. Yes. I'm so disappointed in myself. It's so good. Yeah. So so this user points out that Beaker is really just a disillusioned supervillain gang with access to old cauldron rep and a small fraction of their former resources. And Harsh. It's it's the, the the sentiment we saw a few times actually was was like, um, this isn't really cauldron. They're they're calling themselves cauldron, but they're not cauldron. So I thought that was good take. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, so next bisexual punch party. It's a wonderful name. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I've said that last time. I said I read his name. Um, <laughs> He also addresses the same thing, says that that old old cauldron also had far more recesses. They had Contessa. They had the vials. They had a home base. They had unlimited teleportation. And this new cauldron, while certainly resourceful, number man and uh, and and uh, Citrine combined are very powerful capes, but not not even comparable to what old, the, the resources that old cauldron had. Yeah, that's right. Executioner 404 further points out how. Frequent OG cauldron people used used others as pawns. For example, Doormaker, the Clairvoyant, the Slug, the Custodian. Um, and, and I would actually point out that a lot of these capes are called, you know, the blank. And I feel like the 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 there dehumanizes them and makes them more of, of a utility rather than a person. Like they certainly don't treat Doormaker like a person. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Neo cauldron has more human elements. The flaws are more obvious, but so is the heart seen in the obvious affection between Numzi and Citrine. Aurelian, <laughs> user Aurelian also points out that they always call each other by their real names and not their cape names, which, again, kind of humanizes them a bit. Um, also, also the fact that Citrine regards Number Man's clones as his brothers. So basically, there's, there's, a, lot of, there's a lot more humanity in, um, in, the, in the new cauldron. Yeah, I like that. I like that a lot. Um, Peta Enigma first yells at you for being mean to Cauldron, yep. which to be fair, you, you deserve that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also says everything about old Cauldron revolved around defeating Scion. New Cauldron is focused on keeping everything afloat. Doc Mom, Alexandria and Contessa may have been extremists, but all three had more of a moral core than Harbinger, <laughs> which, uh, that's fair. Yeah. It, it's interesting. The last two comments. I don't want to say contradict each other, but on the one hand, we have more humanity, but we also have the idea that humanity isn't always a good thing. Right, right. Calinero985, this poster focuses on how important Contessa was to Old Cauldron, and almost to the point where it's not Cauldron if it doesn't have Contessa, because the paradigm is just completely different without her. They also bring up the question of whether Number Man is a natural trigger, which I think we established that he is a natural trigger. Like, I think that's yeah. I, 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 maybe, maybe we spoke confusingly last time. But uh, yeah, yeah, he's not I, a cauldron I, cape. I think we did. I think we were not confident on that enough. Yeah. But yeah, or we didn't hit that beat hard enough. But yeah, yeah he, he is a natural trigger, which which does raise into question Citrine, like saying, no, not all capes are bad. Us us cauldron ones are the only good ones yeah. except for my husband yeah it would yeah. be interesting if he didn't know he was a natural trigger i don't know yeah that would be interesting i don't know i don't know um monkey j says cauldron one's extreme tactics while worse were better justified they faced a much bigger threat that is very true that the, the, it was a more immediate and clear threat whereas this is just hey 
we need to keep this place good. Yeah, yeah. So that that utilitarian argument doesn't really hold up quite as well. Mm-hmm. Mark mm-hmm. three. Just say Marcus. Marcus. Why are you complicating? This? Some of you aren't choosing usernames with readability in mind. <laughs> uh, anyway, this poster comments that Neo Cauldron has already repeated a major mistake of Old Cauldron, namely secretly putting parahumans in positions of power. And this mistake blew up in their faces when Costa Brown was revealed, and this will blow up in their faces too. Interesting. Also, I don't think someone called Mordinamale should be <laughs> making fun of someone's username readability, sir. Oh. You want to know what my username is? It's Scott. Yeah. It's Scott. Okay. All right. All right, fine. <laughs> um, user Paradox says the the main difference is that all the cauldron fo- folk were legitimately self-sacrificing and not power hungry. In contrast, Citrine is blatantly power hungry. Very true. Um, we said last week, Dr. Mother very specifically did not really want power. It was just means to an end. It was means to accomplish their objective where Citrine want, seems to not, not necessarily for the sake of power, but definitely, definitely wants power. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's safe to say that Dr. Mother did what she felt she had to do. And with Citrine, there's definitely an element of ambition. Yeah. Iron Zephyr says that Neo Cauldron is on a more Taylor-esque slope. If everyone would just work together, everyone would be fine. You could imagine Citrine thinking something like that, actually. Um, yeah. Because, you know, she she sort of seems to lack a certain appreciation for the difficulties of coordinating people. Absolutely. Cow uh, Subalu V2. I nailed that one. I nailed it. Uh, points out how New Cauldron is a fractured mess. It's not even really the same organization. It just happens to have some of the, the same old members. Uh, this poster does point out the important fact that since Numberman created the new currency, it's possible that he can exert control over it as well. Uh, not only possible, but extremely likely. Yeah. There, uh, there's no way he will not be doing that. And we do see is the new currency that. Um, he created is that the same one that's referenced in the snag interlude um, that is quickly like becoming devalued no i, I believe that th- there's two there's two currencies that are yeah. mentioned there's the trading dollar and the something else dollar and the, tr- the trading dollar i believe is the one that number man created and that's the gotcha. one that that jonathan says is a good currency so in, in other words we're showing that number man did did right uh yeah i mean number man's definitely pr- pretty op so he's definitely a good asset, but he's no Contessa. Mm-hmm. Stellhex points out that New Cauldron isn't above going on impromptu field missions, and that they're basically just just you know emphasizing that they're doing their high level spreadsheets cauldron work, and then they jump into a car and go chase somebody down on a moment's notice. Yeah, not afraid to get those hands dirty. Mm-hmm. Hobo Demon says they're approaching the problem of organizing humanity as if as you would if you were say the hive mind of a colonial organism existing on a cosmic scale oh that's interesting that's yeah interesting imagery there yeah that, I like that, that that's a it's a post worth reading because he points out how number man specifically the way his mind is organized you you suspect maybe his shard was involved in big important uh entity matters like that mm-hmm. shinichi 07 points out that Cyan is more dangerous as an opponent than Teacher is, but Cyan was also pretty dumb. 
teacher is weaker as a power of raw destruction, but much smarter and already moving to strategically flank Cauldron. Ooh, yeah. I, w- I wonder. I wonder how that shakes out because that is it is very it is a very different kind of foe. Mm-hmm. Um, hmm. Yeah. Hmm. I'm I'm interested to see what happens. Yeah, that makes sense to me as a as a good challenge, a good sort of plot twist on how do you face up against this organization that was built for a completely different purpose. Yeah, I mean the 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 entirety of Old Cauldron was literally amass as much power as possible to give us the greatest shot to fight back against him. This might not be a threat you can defeat by just amassing lots and lots of super powerful capes. Right, yeah. Especially since they might be on his side. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and lastly, Zakree says Old Cauldron was a study in humans becoming more inhuman out of necessity. New Cauldron looks like it might be a study of inhuman characters rediscovering their humanity. I like that a lot because that's uh, that kind of fits in some of the themes we're exploring with with Ward so far is this idea of recovery, this idea of um, becoming better and moving past uh, your past mistakes. Yeah, uh, there were some very interesting through lines through many of those comments. And as usual, um, brought up things that I had absolutely not thought about. So I really appreciate everyone's input there. And uh, I think it'll affect, you know, my my reading going forward, actually. Yeah. My favorite thing that, like, at least half of you did was say, it's really too early to know about New Cauldron, but here's five paragraphs. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. We, we don't blame you. That was you. really great. Just, no, not yeah. at all. Not at all. It was just really funny. Yeah. It's too early to make any kind of any kind of judgment, but here yeah. I go. Yeah, here's my analysis <laughs> really regardless. Yeah. So just general comments um, from the thread that weren't related to this question. Uh, 567 doubts that Marsh is a psychopath. Remember last week I, I said Marsh was definitely a psychopath because she blew up the guy's throat and like made it into a cool anime move. Um. So I think March is almost certainly at least a sociopath. The difference being that a sociopath is socialized into losing their natural empathy with humans, often through abuse, while a psychopath is born without that empathy. Sociopaths and psychopaths usually end up in the same place in, and in, in terms of their behavior um, with, with some kind of caveats there. Uh, so yeah. I feel safe in saying that March is at least a, a sociopath. Yeah. And uh- I mean, when I was using the word, I, I was not offering a diagnosis. I was just using shorthand for not well. Yeah. Um, but but that, that I think that was a fair critique, at least. But mm-hmm. March has some issues for sure. Yeah. Uh, Funderfulness uh, wrote a whole po- post kind of analyzing the Damascus wedding rings that uh, Citrine and Numberman were using there. Damascus is different, and the two of them consider themselves different, but together. Damascus is uncommon and difficult, requires forethought and know-how, something they probably could achieve without their powers. But it's still just steel. It's it's utilitarian. It's strong. And that's a pretty good post. You should all check that out. Yeah, the, the point the point being to emphasize the symbolic value of, of, of these rings, which, which mm-hmm. is something I didn't spend a whole lot of time thinking about as I read it. And finally... Mm-hmm. Iron Zephyr uh, disagrees that Citrine comes across as empathic or savvy, which I think I did say that she came across that way last week. Um, but Iron Zephyr says that she clearly doesn't connect, for example, to Neves's position. She just seems baffled by it and then kind of moves on. And I think that's a fair point. I think I may have been giving her too much credit um, or it may be that she has empathy, but she also has blind spots. 
Um, definitely there's something to pay attention to there in terms of is she is she actually as clever as she thinks she is? Yeah, I mean, and that's going to be very important because she is positioning herself as I am the only person that can save the world. And uh, if she's not if she's not quite as as smart and knowledgeable as she thinks she is, that could get her and that same world in a lot of trouble. Yeah, it's possible I was being sucked into the protagonist's uh, uh, frame of mind. That's impossible. No, that we would, would that would never happen to us. Yeah, we would never do that. No. All right, let's move on into the chapters, Scott. Okay. We open chapter 5.y with uh, a strikingly bizarre image, a man holding a zombie baby. And <laughs> and before we move on from the zombie baby, I wanted to try to make some connections. They may end up being pretty weak, but you guys let me know what you feel about this. So we have a zombie baby, which has a bite taken out of its middle, is trapped in a living death, has a snarling face and is kind of rotund all of those features also apply to snag at the end of this chapter yeah i mean he also literally describes himself as someone who uh, died a year ago Mm -hmm. and has just been living in a kind of waking continuous death yeah um so i i think i think while thin um i think it works it absolutely works okay good yeah um, I mean, the, the more d- direct comparison with the zombie baby is they're trading in a zombie baby for a living one, basically. Um, yeah. But I, I do think it says something about the mindset uh, that Wild Bo successfully puts you in with these stories, that when you look at this opening part of this chapter, your first reaction is, wait, what? <laughs> but your second reaction is, oh, I guess I guess we're doing this now. OK, I accept this. Yeah. And, um, I, I think that's that's kind of the story, like we talked about with the worm, the story kind of teaches you how to read it. And uh, Wild Bo has gotten us to a point throughout both of these books where you just kind of roll with new things being introduced into it. And you think for a second there, are we really just going to have zombies now? OK, there's going to be a scientific reason for that in this world. I'm sure. Um, no, it's just a it's just a doll, Matt. There's no there's no zombies. Yeah. Yeah. Or are there? Right. <laughs> I mean, there probably are actually somewhere. So the POV character, Jonathan, whose identity is initially withheld, and we're going to pretend we didn't already talk about that, uh, (laughs) runs across, uh, sorry, runs a store uh, that sells collectibles. A couple are offering to sell him this beloved memento, the zombie baby, and struggling with the decision. Jonathan understands and empathizes with their attachment to the object, but the couple need the money, and he convinces it to sell it to... to, um, to sell it to get convinces them to sell it to him. Wow. Overall, Jonathan offers them advice on what currency is more reliable, pays them more than he probably should, and levels with them regarding their odds of ever being able to buy the doll back, offering to pass on the contact info for the buyer. So all around, all of these things add up to Jonathan being a stand-up likable guy. Yeah, and I think that is the goal of this entire opening scene of this chapter, right? Is is to firmly and and clearly establish that Jonathan snack snack um, yeah. was an extremely nice good person and, and this is something we've seen him tell to Rain before right like I was I was a good person or, or maybe Cradle's the one that says that he was a good person before you did this to him it's something we've gotten hints at inside his trigger dream we saw him go out of his way to try to save that woman um, but this this is this is the story telling us as directly as possible. Um, before everything happened, before the events in the mall happened, Snag was a 
as close to being a good dude as you could be in this world. And I think we should talk about how how the scene specifically does that, because it's doing a lot of pretty interesting things to to get this across to us. Yeah, go for it. Because what we see is Jonathan kind of recognizes that these people are very are, are, are racked with indecision, unsure that they want to let go of this this zombie baby, which turns out is something very important to their relationship. Um, he, he recognizes the importance of this thing, but he also recognizes that the couple needs to sell it. They have a a baby coming and they need money to provide for that baby. So so Jonathan then then shifts to convincing them that they should sell it. He talks about the most important element of survival in the end times is having that right mindset and prioritizing the the future living baby over the old undead one <coughs> symbolism mm-hmm. um is is indeed according to him having the right mindset. And and I think it's important that we don't see him do this until after he understands the couple's need. So so the story makes it very clear to us that um that that he's not doing this because he needs the sale because he wants the sale he's not doing this as a sales pitch and he he says that directly to them that that this is i'm not doing this for a sale pitch he he understands that they need to sell this thing and he he's he supports them so this is him being selfless this is him giving them the little push that they need after he recognizes that they do need it and then we we go further with him not trying to to grift them on a currency he's honest with what they're getting and we even see in that moment, like you said, that he's tempted to offer more. He, he's already giving them too much money for this thing. He's tempted to offer them more, but knows that he can't. Mm-hmm. And frankly, Snag is so nice here, like that it almost borders on unbelievable. Like it almost gets to the point where it's like no one, no one's going to be this nice to people. And I think that that holds true right up until we learn the reasoning behind it. We, we learn why Snag is keeping the store of store up um, a store, which he has basically just admitted that is filled with things that have little value when you are trying to rebuild your life after the apocalypse. And we learn it's because of his brother. His brother ran a store exactly like this and running it even basically at a loss, which he is, makes him feel closer to his brother. Um, and that makes all the actions above makes sense this entire store matt is jonathan's zombie baby yeah and and even as he's telling these people the sensible thing to do he can't do it himself yeah i mean i think the store is is one of my favorite metaphors in the story to this point of someone who's grieving and having trouble letting go of the past because it's not only is it a relic and memento of his brother's existence and something that makes him feel closer to his brother the store itself is full of relics and mementos yeah to the past in general it's just a giant flashing neon symbol pointing to the past yep and it's interesting that you know the whole trigger thing really kind of severs this 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 line it severs this connection to the past it burns it up literally burns it up and it leaves him with only only this revenge that he feels and this hollowness yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it's it's really it's really it's fantastic. Um, I, I love I love that like his motivation makes complete sense. I love that this this Jonathan is able is so different that he's able to contrast directly with the snag we see later in the chapters. Um, I, I love I love this one part when he's talking to the family and there's this through line of civilization 
wins over madness, right? Like that, that's, that's something she says to him that, that the most important thing here is civilization is getting back to some form of civilization. And that's what Jonathan is trying to preserve. That's what everyone in this world is trying to preserve. Um, but we know how that's going to go. Yeah. I think it's especially good to think about this chapter in context of the first time we met snag where he was just a gigantic asshole like yeah. he was very unlikable. He was he was against Victoria. He was he was being aggressive and dangerous, and he wasn't even being nice to his fellow villains. And it's it's important to contrast that character with this guy and really marvel at how much of a you know perspective whiplash we have on this character, and and also an understanding for what he's gone through. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but but we we have to end this section. As as we talk about civilization and winning over madness, as we talk about um, striving to hold on to the past while setting out into the future, um, we have this moment where he he helps more customers until a torrent of stern words from across the shopping center's concourse turned his head. A red-haired woman berating her daughter. It made him uncomfortable. It was a move away from the civilization and society he, he hoped things were trending toward. And there's his future right there, standing across the mall. There's love lost. There's his cluster. There's everything bad that's going to happen to him. There's civilization might be winning right now, but that madness is literally just right around the corner. And that's how we end this section of the chapter. Yeah. Yeah. Civilization is underrated, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um, it, it, so it left me wondering, due to the the fact that this section slides into... Um, a dream room segment i was wondering is, is this a dream or is this just a memory i felt like it was a memory um it didn't have it didn't it didn't have a, a dreamy like feel to it that the other trigger dreams have had yeah it didn't seem like the kind of thing that the shard would use to like torture them you know right so uh, i agree actually I, I was really only asking because of the fact that we go from here into uh a flashback to the second night in the dream room and in this setting, Rain is still full of rage, still very much his fallen self, still spouting fallen ideology. Love Lost is essentially having an ongoing nervous breakdown with her fingers shoved into her mouth. And Cradle, interestingly, is described as a boy with glasses, which makes him seem younger than I had pegged. But I guess that makes sense because previously we've mainly had him described from Rain's point of view and Rain would be younger than him. Mm hmm. Yeah. Um, I think I originally imagined him as older, too. But I think over the course of the interactions we've had with him, he's like aged down in my mind. So by mm -hmm. the time we got to that description, that kind of lined up with what I thought. But yeah, originally I was thinking of him as older. I don't know why, but when I think Tinker, I automatically go older mm -hmm. um, just because I'm imagining like crazy old scientists yeah i because I, I go you know why it's because i go doc brown every <laughs> time i think i think of scientists i go doc brown damn you back to the future yeah doc brown aka rick um, <laughs> yeah yeah and then so jonathan is talking and in the middle of a sentence he says i feel and then his voice takes on a rough edge which it then keeps so basically in the dream state his body is catching up with or you know his dream body is catching up with the state of his real body perhaps and we'll later see attributes and articles of clothing carried on between the real world and the dream. Yeah, yeah. This is a pretty big clue as to kind of what's going on in this thing because we're kind of seeing maybe a snapshot of who they were at the time that's slowly being invaded. So it's like it's almost as if 
here's this is a physical manifestation of their personality and it's slowly being invaded from the things that happen on the outside. Like one of the big the big elements here is Rain has his fallen mask on his face in this part, in, in this second night of the dream. And that is something that I'm pretty sure he has not carried with him in the ones where we've seen him inside this room. Right. Yeah, I don't think he's wearing it currently. Yeah. Um, and of course, yeah, Snag's voice is matching the outside world. Um, yeah, they, they, the equipment and, and, and different things, it, it kind of mm-hmm. shows um, it shows they're changing as people. Yeah. Love Lost begins wearing her mask. And yeah. Yeah. There's there's a very interesting beat here, though, to me, where, where Snag is describing how he feels. After, he says, I feel. But then he goes on to describe it. Hollowed out. Numb. Angry. Lost. So he feels empty, numb, angry, and lost. Four emotions swirling around his brain right now. Mm-hmm. And there's four people in this room, Matt. It's just, it's just coincidence, yeah, maybe. But I, I feel like there's going to be a lot to be played with here involving the swapping around of states between these people. Yeah. And, I, and yeah. I have some trepidation about like what's going to happen to Rain now that, now, now that Snag is a uh, spoiler gone it's not a spoiler like, We're, like if you haven't read the chapter and you're listening to this what are you doing go read the chapter yes all all of you um because <laughs> like what if what if snag was like the only one providing like the good heartedness of the cluster yeah that's <laughs> interesting does his personality leave with him when he dies yeah yeah, yeah. it seems to right because he gets it back he gets it back yeah so what yeah. does that mean for rain yeah we'll see so we flash to the fallen battle, and Snag is embedded with the Undersiders at this moment. He's frustrated that the Undersiders are moving slowly. Biter, Bitch, Foil, Parian, and Imp are taking their time clearing the buildings. Rachel insists that they check all the buildings before moving on, and she also now seems to be speaking in lengthy sentences and going out of her way to communicate with people, and also she seems to have an even greater degree of attunement to her dogs than I can recall. Yeah, absolutely. There's like a point where the dog literally raises its paw and points in the direction of something it's found. Um, and I'm pretty sure we've never seen the dogs do that before. So whether it's just um, much longer, better training or whether it's she's just more in her power has grown and she's more in tune with them than ever before. Uh, maybe a little, little of both. Yeah. Um, but yeah, she's definitely seems to be doing pretty well. Yeah, I mean, I I think the, the the long sentences and the fact that she's mostly bothering to answer people's questions are, you know, huge, huge strides for her character. And, and she seems much more like centered now. At a girl. Yeah. So proud of you. So Snag ominously thinks to himself that Tattletail's terms for helping his group are different from the rest of the team. So, yeah, we keep hitting this ominous Tattletail beat. Yeah, Tattletail, who has mysteriously been absent from basically, um, basically everything. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the she kind of showed up, warned our heroes, and then disappeared for the whole battle. And it's not exactly abnormal for her to be like behind the scenes. That's where she's most valuable. But but yeah, we're we're, we're definitely hitting these beats of setup where um, reinforcing that people either. Uh, know that Tattletail has something up her sleeve or like in the Citrine interlude, like she's not seeing the whole picture. She's she's doing something and it's different from everyone else's motivation here. Yeah. But we and just, it could be bad. It could be bad, but we just love her. We want her to come out of this okay. 
Uh-huh. So we learn a bit more about Snag's power as we go. His mover power lets him pick which direction is down. <laughs> His version of Rain's power lets him punch through inorganic objects with ease. Which now explains why he just was easily able to punch through that wall in the first arc. Remember, he was just hanging out behind Victoria and just yeah. said, oh, look, a wall. Yeah, it's 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 pretty awesome, actually. Like, the, yeah. just these two in concert. Um, and then, of course, he has the giant tinker arms, which apparently are super heavy, which we didn't realize. Yeah, and they, like, he can change which, which emotions they affect. Yeah. And yeah. also has different weapons that can come flying out of them that have those emotional attachments on them. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Totally, yeah. So that the group finds hiding in one of the houses. Um, introspection, Chris, whispering to himself <laughs> unintelligibly, hunched over nursery, magnate, and a fallen cape, who have been laid in a pile. There's nothing creepy about this situation at all. No, no, no disturbing undertones at this encounter. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and and we learn here that it, like based on on context clues, Chris has dragged them into this house. We see drag marks. That's what leads them into this house, um, and he's just like, like standing over them and whispering. Uh, timeline wise, he still has all four legs, so we know this is before he jumped in to save the day with the rest of the toys. Um, but we, I mean, we don't know, is this like before or after he got a look at mama for the first time? We don't actually know that. Um, but he's doing something weird. Yeah. Um, I think I read some people discussing whether like they're basically expecting to find him eating them, um, which <laughs> Jesus. I, not going to say that crossed my mind, but it definitely did have some creepy, unpleasant, uh, emotions there. I mean, he's like standing like over them, like in my head, it felt like like they put them in his nest and was like hovering over them. Yeah. But so Inc- I mean, that's possible. Yeah. 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 Something creepy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm going to just generously assume that he was just like knocking them out with some kind of master sub power he has. Um, and, and yeah, like foil doesn't even seem to think that it was Chris that hurt them at all. Maybe he was even trying to protect them. Who knows? Yeah. I mean, nursery is, uh, burned and, it's pretty clear that he did not cause that. Mm-hmm. Um, he did not do that. So yeah, it's just like, maybe he just, it could, it could be just all totally positive. And he just saw these hurt people and said, I'm going to drag you into a house and protect you by whispering creepily while yeah. incubating you. Yeah. That's, it could be totally positive. <laughs> really hope to find out what this was about. <laughs> I'm sure we will. Um, yeah, it, it does. It does. Um, leave you with some discomfort related to Chris. Yeah. He's still a big question mark. We've learned a little bit more about him throughout this arc. Um, as Victoria has like made a conscious effort to focus on him a bit more, but still a lot of unanswered questions there. Yeah. So snag at this point picks up nursery and carries her out of the house and he ruminates on the complete lack of compassion that he feels for her uh, and recognizes this as a loss of part of himself. Yeah. Which he both loves and hates, right? Um, we, we did talk about how important his compassion seemed to be to him as a person back when he was Jonathan. Um, and, and here he recognizes the lack of it and, and, and he sees it as easy, right? Like it, this, is, this is the easy way to go through life. Lacking compassion, it makes what I have decided I have to do easy. But it's not really what he wants underneath it all. He hated what it represented is what he says. 
and 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 this is this is exactly how that hatred has turned towards rain um he's responsible for everything he's responsible for breaking that connection with his brother he's responsible for making him feel this way making him feel empty making him feel with like he has no more compassion like he's not even connected to the world anymore it's all this person's fault it doesn't matter if rain is a new person now it doesn't matter if rain has changed his mind that's not even what this is about anymore yeah yeah I, this several moments like this just are building us toward this later moment when just the kind of emptiness is so overwhelming that snag is willing to do almost anything to end it and he does so mm-hmm. so at this point they hear that march is present and uh while this obviously makes foil and Perrion worried snag doesn't seem to make the connection that this implies that rain might be here yeah not yet but it is a nice little but setup does, for how it does he does plant the seed that sprouts later yeah yeah um so then we skip to a later point the showdown and there he does recognize rain now finally putting the pieces together i i love i love this moment matt i, I love i love this so much that i'm just going to read it all <laughs> because it's so great um so he says kiss and kill he could understand it even if the dreams were unique to his own particular group He knew these people as well as he might know any person he'd been married to for a year. He spent hours every night locked in a room with them, separated by invisible dividers. What started as a seed of an idea became something more when his eye fell on the one with the hood, draping sleeves, and the faux machine mask. The way he walked and held himself, the fact that his presence could explain both the presence of March and the inexplicable intervention of the heroes. It's him, he growled. So this whole chapter... We've basically known Snag's endpoint. We've known what the end of Snag's storyline will be. We, we've saw enough of the fight to know that he's probably not going to get out of this thing alive. And there's a real sense of climax in these words. There, there's finality here. He knows these people more than someone he would have been married to. A seed growing into something more. Thought processes clicking into place. It's him. This, this is it. And this feels like it's it. This feels like the beginning of the end. Um, and it's it's wonderfully executed. Yeah, that's right. We've been building toward this for the whole story, essentially. Yeah. And, and yeah, th- th- there's a feeling of, yeah, we're finally here. So Nursery offers to help them get some alone time with Rain. And she chides Snag for having been an asshole before when she knows he's capable of being better. Yeah, and I, I don't think it's an accident that before Snag engages in this final battle with the person that wronged him and he's seeking revenge for, one of his teammates specifically tells him not to be an asshole, who specifically tells him, you are better than than this, or you are better than what you have become. Yeah. So suddenly the ambush begins, and Snag has a better understanding of what's going on than Victoria did, because he knows the speedrunners, he traded them some of the tech they're using now, and he's close enough to hear Secondhand's explanation, which is, someone's got to represent the fourth. So the speedrunners are apparently a new fallen faction, patterned after Kansu. Um, you know, except you have to wonder how like willing their involvement is here, given the situation. Uh, Snag doesn't know either, of course. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the Mama Veilfort factor absolutely complicates this. But still, I think this is a twist that works really well. 
um, because it makes perfect logical sense if you look at their powers and, and look at um, how the Fallen as an organization work. And um, but but it's not something I saw coming. Like it's it's one of those twists that is so obvious when laid in front of you, but um, is is very cleverly hidden. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's we basically already saw the twist happen, but it but we didn't get the explanation of mm-hmm. not that this is a full explanation, but I like that we get a little bit more background info about who these guys are and, and how this happened. I mean, it's it's kind of. A cool create we haven't mentioned this specifically yet but it is a cool creative idea to have basically you're basically showing all the same events again but you're showing them from a different perspective and they feel completely fresh because you're coming at it with a new set of information yeah almost as if perspective is super important mm, perhaps perhaps i'm gonna say that in every single episode <laughs> that's my goal all right so snag flies into the sky and then tries to crush rain when he lands but Rain's slightly elevated mover stats give him enough of an edge to dodge. Rain continues to plead for some kind of truce, but Snag doesn't relent, and Rain begins to pelt him with the silver blades. We understand that Snag does not understand Rain's power at all. He tries to, to deduce how it works, but he fails to, interpreting it perhaps as a time-delayed slash. Rain keeps his distance, and the pair duel briefly, using their matched powers to attack and to evade, until Snag realizes Rain has a soft spot for the fallen hostages, and when he threatens them, Rain closes with him, and they struggle. He loses one mechanical arm, and then his unprotected arm is badly maimed by Rain's booby-trapped baby arms. Rain pins Snag in place with a salvo of silver blades, but Snag, either ignorant or uncaring, strikes Rain despite his fragility, and the fatal wound opens up. So... I just let you talk during that whole battle because, first of all, I didn't want to interrupt it because it's all really great. Um, But also, I think the best way to approach this whole thing is discussing it as a whole after it's all said and done. Um, I I think that's the best way. And so I think I think perhaps with just a little bit of exaggeration, um, this is one of the finest sequences in the novel so far. And I think it's one of the best things that Wildbow has ever written that I've read. Um, I obviously haven't read his other two books, but so uh, our protagonist in the story is Victoria and she's fascinating and I can't wait to see where her story goes. But the conflict between Rain and his cluster has absolutely defined the early parts of the story. The, the first five acts kind of center on uh, the the oncoming conflict between him and his shard cluster. And this is the culmination of the first part of that story. This is a mano a mano fight between two people that are kind of forced by horrible circumstance into this fight to the death. And, and this is something I, I want to talk about um, because it gets to this idea of why do we like action scenes? What makes an action scene good? And is it, is it that it's cool? Is it that the, the choreography super fluid I mean, that's great. I mean, it it makes it fun to watch or to read. But action scenes are good because of the character and the emotion behind them. And this is why, Matt, Uh the lightsaber fight from Return of the Jedi will always, 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 always be better than the silly one from Phantom Menace. Don't fucking at me about that. It's the truth. I will not back down from this. Um, And... And I think that's what we have here. We have this pretty simple 
duel between two people. There are some flourishy, cool parts in this fight, sure. But underneath all of it is this emotional through line that we've been carrying throughout the story. Each of these people want something, and the survival of the other is standing in between what they want. Snag wants revenge. He's completely absorbed with what happened in the past. Rain wants a new start to be a new, better person, to build something, as he says. He is looking towards the future. And and that is that is our conflict coming to a head with these two characters. Yeah, and, and you actually, you side with Rain, but you don't, actually want snag to die now that we right. get to know him we actually just want him to change his mind uh, right and and that's, and that's the happens. thing who is the antagonist in this conflict who is the protagonist in this conflict mm-hmm. who 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 should win who do we want to win and and obviously we like rain a lot we understand where rain is coming from but we've spent this entire chapter understanding what has happened to poor jonathan as well yeah and Every every bit of writing throughout this fight reinforces the, this this central idea, the central inevitability of this conflict, and the and the the how the devastating nature of it. Like Snag never calls Rain by his name once throughout the entire fight. He calls him the boy throughout the entire fight. That's how any all of Rain's actions are described throughout this. Is the boy did this? I did this to the boy. Um, Rain the entire time is is kind of being the hero. He's trying to talk him down. He's pleading with him to stop. But but they're at an impasse. And that's what that's what conflict is, that that when you get to a point where there is nothing to do but fight is the only thing that's going to solve this at this point. Yeah. Because Rain can't give up. He's 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 got too much he needs to do still, too much he wants to build things to do it can't end for him here he he doesn't feel like he's earned a second chance yet and and snag can't stop either because and it's not even like the the crazy part about this is it's not even really about revenge for him at this point he describes it as killing him would be like putting your head down on a pillow after a long day's work it would be peace it would be rest it would be contentment that he hasn't felt in so long and so that's not even really revenge. That's not even really focusing on the revenge. It's just the thing needs to be done. So it's done. And, and you're never going to talk someone out of that when he's at that point. It's just like no, no words will solve this conflict at this point. Yeah. He, he's, he's already lost. And we see, we see that we see the kind of reversal of their characters when what really kind of pushes rain to the point of being aggressive is that snag makes like he's going to go after the hostages yeah. And he probably would too. He's not faking it. Like at this no, point, yeah, we, can, we can believe that he's this far gone, and that's the turning point for Rain, where Rain begins to be aggressive, and and that's the point where Snag actually starts to lose. Um, and yeah, it, it's it's interesting that while technically Rain does kill him, he does it in sort of that classic hero way of killing someone, where you did really pretty much everything you could do to avoid it. And the person did the equivalent of like running onto your sword. Yeah, absolutely. But he's still culpable for some of this. Yeah. Like this line, either let me help or get no help at all. And this rain has won the fight by this point. Like he, he is one snag says, if you have any mercy, you'll let me go. But they both know at this point that snag will not stop coming after him. Cannot. 
And and for Terrain, if he's ever going to be able to move beyond his past, if he's ever going to be able to build the things he wants to build and do the things he wants to do, he has to be free from this. He has to be free from Snag, from these past mistakes. So he throws his blades one last time and Snag reaches up to punch him. And I think the important thing here is that the text notes that Rain lets it happen. The, the, the line is here, the boy let himself be hit, yeah. only bringing his arms up to shield himself. He let himself be hit. Now, there is absolutely some intentional confusion in the text around whether Snag fully understood how Rain's power worked at this point. Did he fully understand that by punching this kid, he will be signing his own death warrant? Um, maybe, maybe not. But what is true is that Rain knows, and that Rain knows by taking this hit, that 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 slash on him will open up. Yeah. He, Rain knew and he stood there and let himself be hit. Yeah. And that's that's saying something. Yeah. Well, and it's not surprising either because Rain had basically, you know, been self-talking himself into this idea that like, all right, these yeah. guys are not going to relent. I'm I, I'm really not going to be able to convince them. It actually says a lot that he's still trying to convince Snag, even in this scene when he's kind of accepted that it's not going to be possible. And he's mm-hmm. you know he tells he tells himself, "I'm going to have to kill all these people. I'm going to have to kill Mama Mathers. It's the only way out of the situation for me." And yeah, I mean, I, I kind of like my comparison to like if 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 I'm holding the sword out and you're still running at me trying to cut me down. I, I do not feel too bad if you run onto the sword because it's like you, you could have just not done that, you know? And, and Sure, yeah. but you're still holding the sword out. Yeah, but that's the... I'm, I'm not denying, basically... I'm, my point is Rain gave him every opportunity to not do this and yes. th- this was the last line where he was like, all right, all right, go go ahead and punch me. You're going to die now. Okay, you did it. All right. Yeah. I don't... I, I, get, I get to feel minimally bad about this now. Sure. But isn't there... Isn't there a little bit of like the um, the criminal doing one last one last crime before he retires? Right. Like this idea that in order to become a person that doesn't murder people anymore, first, I got to murder all these people. And there's there's an interesting <laughs> thought to that. Right. That like I want to be a better person. I want and, and, and I'm not saying Rain's wrong. I mean, it is very clear throughout this that Snag will never stop coming, that Love Lost will never stop coming. That Cradle will never stop coming. This might truly be the only option that he has. But it, I think it, it does say something that like, just, just one more murder, and then I'll be at the point where I can be a good guy. And I don't know. I, I think that is saying something. Yeah, I'm definitely a little worried. I'm a little worried about the the, the possibility of his character you know, reverting or, or, or whatever, you know, we'll, we'll see. I, I think that that would be an interesting kind of reversal where his actions start out being fairly justifiable. Like, I, I would call this justifiable, honestly, but it would be interesting to see if his actions become less and less justifiable as he's like, oh yeah, well then I had to kill Cradle and then right. I had to kill Love Lost. <laughs> you understand? It, there was nothing I could do. Like, Right. Well, and, and it's like, yeah, it's like, does... Is there ever really one last one last heist? Is yeah. I mean, is, is there ever really is just one more, just one more, just one more? 
um, then then we'll be good. Then then I'll get I'll get to the place I need. Yeah. And that's that's the worry there. I, I'm not saying that that ha- being forced against a wall and 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 having to take these people's lives is not justifiable. I'm just saying what that could could become. Yeah. Sure, and I'm, I'm, I'm excited to see what it becomes, wh- whatever direction we go. All right, that was a good little interlude of yeah. ar- arguing about that. Um, but now, Jonathan is back in the room by himself, in the dream room, and he feels like himself again, finally. It's like Jonathan has been dormant all this time, or like he's been gradually stuffed away, and he, and he thinks... Was it that the connection had been severed or that this mad quest had ended? His time as a cape was over. There was no going back. Yeah, and I love that here, even at the end, we're still not clear on this whole, is it a personality bleed thing, right? Like, um, at this point, it seems like there is something Shard-related going on with these emotions, right? Like, Snag is is conscious that he is just not feeling things he used to feel anymore. Um, The second he dies, all these things come flooding back, but... I mean, metaphorically, there is a way that where you can just you you make yourself focus on only only the mission, only the revenge. That's everything you focus on and every other emotion you push out of the way The think because you don't need that stuff. And then as soon as as soon as it's over, whether you succeed or you fail, as soon as it's over, that old person comes back because he was always there somewhere Um but he comes back and, and maybe, maybe this is shard stuff and maybe it's just a metaphor for that idea. That singular focus pushes all of their emotions out and then they come rushing back at the end of it all. But, um, it's really awesome regardless. Yeah. It's also neat that he gets this release, this relief that he wanted. He expected to get it by killing rain, but it turns out that he actually gets it by dying. Yeah. So now the others arrive and Snag tells them that it's not worth it, that they can't hear him. His tokens are distributed to Rain and Cradle, and then Lovelost removes her mask and tells him, rest, Jonathan, we'll get your revenge. She can talk. Yeah. What does that mean? I mean, I think she's just so, like, broken that she just chooses not to talk. Yeah, that's... And this is, I mean, this is a, a tragedy. This, this, I mean, this, <laughs> this entire chapter is, like... A, a tragic tale from beginning to end. And he, he realizes the error in his ways. He realizes what they're doing is wrong, but it's, it's too late. Yeah. It's too late. And I love that rain echoes unknowingly echoes snags words here. He's saying at the same time snag is saying it. It's not worth it. What you're doing. It's not worth it. The The people that you're killing to get your revenge, that the people you're hurting, you're, you're take, losing your own lives. It's not worth it. Yeah. And I wonder if that shows, uh, if that, that kind of shows the connection that they both say the same thing here. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really beautiful. And then it ends with the lights went off, the barrier went down and he gained something of an understanding of what, not who was in the fifth space that had been between his and the fallen boys. With that knowledge, he slipped into dreams of a different sort, knowing that even as they paused or were broken up by visits to the room, there would never be an end to them. And thus, that is the end. So this gets me thinking about the idea of an afterlife in this world, um, and and what that could be within the science fiction of the story. Uh, Because we know shards retain 
personality traits somewhat, right? Because yeah. they like because um, Valkyrie's ghosts have some of their clothing and and seem to have taken on some of the traits of the host. So maybe this is what what the afterlife looks like for capes. You you your your soul, as it were, is still in the shard somewhere yeah. and goes somewhere. Yeah, I mean the story's giving us clues about this. Like Ashley has these memories she shouldn't have. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, all of the all of the clones have this issue in in one way or another. Uh, you know, particularly have the issue with Gray Boy, where he doesn't so much get cloned as like his shard just like rebirths him as soon as his body is done. Yeah. Um, which indicates that his shard was just kind of sitting around storing Gray Boy this whole time. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, we have the scene with the um the broken trigger, where the, the, like the last survivor of the broken trigger says that he's like has this feeling like he's staring down into a volcano at this deep infinite well of power and he feels like if he lets himself fall into it it'll it'll store him and make a copy of him or something um yeah he says it in this poetic way but yeah the story's given us many beats of this idea of like a cape afterlife like you said mm-hmm. yeah and and i think that's going to probably end up being one of the the big plot elements of the story is is what happens to these people like because because right now the whole the whole shard cycle is come down go into people create conflict gather data um people kill themselves and if they don't we will the cycle will eventually be over and we'll we'll kill all them and then all this data and knowledge will come back up into the entity and then we'll leave and go somewhere else so that we know that cycle has been disrupted but the shards are still carrying on with that mission basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're going somewhere they're, they're, they're doing something. Um, and we don't know what that is. And, and it would be interesting to see if this is that, what, what the shards are doing, what the, the remnants of these aliens are doing, um, now that that has been broken and what that could mean for the future of this universe. Yeah. It makes me wonder if the alien, hosts you know all of the prior alien hosts of the shards are are stored in some way inside the shards and you know they have this zoo of all the alien life they've ever come across yeah yeah interesting Hmm. definitely going to be exploring that in the future i guarantee it yeah all right well that wraps up arc five did you have uh some comments about arc five in general yeah, so I wanted to take a, a few minutes here to just talk about the arc as a whole and, and see now that we've seen the breadth of it, um, what it really was dealing with, what the theme of this arc was and what it was exploring and how it did did it. Um, and feel free to jump in at any point here. I just wrote a whole bunch of stuff down. So um, sure. So so arc five shadow is absolutely the longest arc of the book so far. It's it's 15 chapters. It's over 100,000 words. Um, it, it's basically big enough to be a book all by itself. And it, it's very clear here just by narrative real estate that this is an extremely important moment in the overall story of Ward. It, it takes up so much space in the story so far that this is this is important. And in fact, I think when we look at, at the arc as a whole, it, it, it kind of becomes this pivot point on which the rest of the story will turn. And I think that's because of one really important thing. And I think it's failure. Mm-hmm. Everybody fucks up in this chapter. Everybody. Um, things get hard 
And the first thing a lot of people do is go right back into their old behavior. They fall back into what's comfortable. In Snag's interlude that, that caps the arc, he discusses this idea of civilization winning over madness with his, uh, his clients. Um, that's the goal, right? That's the total goal is, is establish civilization. Civilization is better and it will bring order to chaos. Arc five shadow is madness overtaking civilization. And when we look through it, I think we see that from the first chapter to the last. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, I think that this is, you know, we, we have a variety of characters who have, who have goals that are, I don't want to say unrealistically ambitious, but difficult for them specifically. Like, a lot i think it's becoming clearer and clearer that a lot of victoria's goals are unrealistic for, for her like she's yeah she wants something that is no longer possible in this world and she's been sort of had it had it shoved into her face over and over this arc and yeah. repeatedly doubled down on her conviction that she's going to get things the way she wants them to be and in one sense that's admirable because it shows that she you know she sticks to it she she doesn't she doesn't compromise she she is a she, true blue hero who who will not ever you know bend or or give up but that's not so positive if if the thing that breaks is is her yeah uh, so yeah, yeah I, I think that's i think failure you're right that's a a critical thing to pay attention to in this arc yeah cuz if we look this arc opens up with victoria you know, heading back to the toys base and she's thinking over this conversation that she had with Yamada, um, a conversation that basically confirms her worst fears that that something is going on in this group that she's made herself a part of. Someone is is a greater threat to the point where uh, Yamada is worried about it. And she she kind of in this moment centers herself, reaches out and promises that she's going to redouble her efforts here. She's she mentions to Yamada in this conversation that the war is coming and then that the toys are probably going to get swept up in it. And she says, if it happens, we can try to make sure it happens in the safest, most controlled way possible. Well, how'd that work out? Mm -hmm. um, and then and then later in the chapter, the toys help Ashley with her new name. They call her she's Swan Song. She's got a new costume. She seems to be making these these strives towards um, not falling back on that that villain identity, becoming a new Ashley. Mm -hmm. How, how'd that work out? Yeah. And then the advance guards show up and, and things descend into fighting and the, the, the misfit toys entire plan is kind of ruined. They're forced out themselves. Um, it, it, in their presence here, the conflict escalates. We learn that this giant battle is coming and because of rain's involvement in it, mama knows about it. And now the fallen have a bunch more people and now it becomes a war. Oops. Yeah. <laughs> and and at the, at the center of this, in, right in the middle of this arc is Rain's interlude where where we finally learn about him. He is he is absolutely the emotional core of this arc because it, this this has been while this is Victoria's story overall, he is the thing the conflict has been turning on so far. Um he he is a man trying to do better, a man trying to learn from his past and, and look towards the future. He doesn't want to be this evil killer anymore. He wants, as we'll learn later, this opportunity to build something instead of destroying something. But but he he has to destroy again to do that. It's another failure. Mm -hmm. And 
the war starts and goes just about as badly as everyone expected it to go. Swansong basically becomes damsel of distress again. People are dying. Victoria's idea of keeping everyone safe in her and controlled and and calm and her team quickly proves impossible. Not not in this world. Everybody in this book wants to start fresh. We have the amnesty. We have peace at last. We have this idea of a new chance looking forward tomorrow. And it all ends in a single moment of monstrousness and madness. We start this arc clinging to hope for the future. We end it with death and war. And at the center of it all is our hero. The one person that feels like she has to do something about it is also the one person that seems powerless to stop it all. And so to Victoria, in Arc 5 Shadow, she failed. Everybody failed. Yeah. Well, see, I I don't take all of this as as a negative though, you know? Like they they have to they have to fail in order to grow and and readjust and recalibrate toward yeah. more realistic goals. And you know, it's really interesting like for some reason as you were going through all of these failures I kept thinking, uh, Capricorn kept jumping into my mind as like the only one whose like whose goals are actually modest and realistic enough that he hasn't really had a chance to fail, and he also hasn't had a chance to murder anyone that we've seen. Like <laughs> yet. he's yeah, he's one of the few people in the team who hasn't murdered anyone yet, um, and I think that's I think there's something there. There's this idea of like you can't force yourself to become a different person, but you can recognize the ways in which you're flawed and try to pick a future where you're, you're not pretending that things are going to work that aren't actually going to work. Yeah. And, and I, I absolutely do not think that, um, pointing out the failure in all these characters has to be taken as a negative. Mm -hmm. I think you're absolutely right that the road to recovery is probably paved with failures. It's, it's probably like addicts fall off the wagon. Um, people try to get better and set crazy goals for themselves that are unachievable. Failure is a teacher. Failure helps you learn and, and adjust and strike out better. Um, and I, I am still hopeful for every single one of these characters, but, but this is absolutely the shift on which that's going to happen. This is what's going to failing is human. We all do it. The important thing now is how all of our characters react to that failure. Yeah. What are they going to do? How, how are they going to adjust? How is Victoria going to kind of deal with, with her inability to stop these things and and readjust her expectations and refocus her her needs to her wants, and that's the important thing. So yeah, yeah I mean, I, I'm not I'm not calling these characters failures, but they did fail. Yeah, well, I, I think you know just just to like really underline the point you're making here, you know, you you, you bring up Victoria's Reigns and Ashley's failures to basically live up to their own standards. Mm -hmm. And th those are three excellent kinds of failure because these are these are all three people who are trying to be better and, and trying to be 
to be to be good, you know. Yeah. And the fact that they fall short of that, like, that's noble, actually, that they tried yeah. in the first place. I mean, like in this world where the... many people aren't trying. Sure, sure. I mean, they totally killed people, but yeah, no. I mean, it is like the, the, we we talked about this when we were ta- when we had that question about what is redemption and and how does Rain redeem himself. The the idea that he wants it is so important to to that idea of whether or not he deserves it right the idea mm-hmm. that you you look at yourself and say i want to be better than that and yeah you're going to stumble it happens this is really hard stuff that the trauma that is is affecting all these people is really freaking hard to get over and you're going to you're going to mess up but what you do with that mistake is the important part and i think that's what we're going to see the story go through next yeah so with that i think we should get into this next this next arc and maybe we can talk about some of the things that we noticed that uh, distinguish it from the prior arc i don't know if we're going to have a lot of certainty in that but we'll point it out well, if we yeah. get there yeah we'll act like we do and then yeah you know yeah <laughs> all right 6.1 and we're back with victoria in the middle of the fighting victoria is frustrated feeling insignificant feeling like nothing she's doing makes a difference We'll see that frustration manifest and we'll see its consequences shortly. Yep. And and that's what we were talking about. If, if there's a central theme to this opening chapter of this arc, it's that it, it's a feeling of powerlessness and insignificance. And 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 it's, it's everywhere in this chapter. And our characters really are trying hard to do good stuff and just are not able to. Yeah. So Tristan seems to defer leadership to her and she seems to implicitly accept it, taking charge. It's a plan. We are we go to the heroes, we back them up. She she kind of you know, she chooses the direction, she calls the shot, and everybody follows. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, but I think I think how Tristan does it is important to this, how mm-hmm. what, to what, what this chapter is saying. Because he says, I know I'm kind of the leader, but I can't think straight like this. He he says, I can't handle this. I need help. Someone else please step up. And his team does it for him. Sveta offers something, Victoria agrees with it and takes it and assumes leadership. Things are, are really bad right now. And everyone in this group is feeling powerless. But I think one of the things that this chapter is saying is that when you are feeling that way, lean on your friends, lean on the people around you, lean on your team. They can help you. And Tristan does that in this moment. Yeah. Um, Yeah. The the team somewhat, someone might not though. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. The team mostly does really well through this section. Mm hmm. The craziness of the battle takes the following basic shape. We have Vista and Capricorn using their powers continuously to provide defense, and Narwhal providing an unending barrage of force fields. Seer here is the fallen MVP, bolstered by a borrowed danger sense power that lets him swap between duplicates while pressing the attack. Yeah, this is all really fun stuff, seeing all these capes kind of work together. Um, And Seer, man, I did not expect this guy to be this powerful, but he's... It's doing work. Yeah, there's there's tons of like fighting going on here, and and it, it never really feels confusing. I think this is a really well written battle scene. I agree. Yeah, there's a great character moment here where everyone says, uh, you know, hey Seta, maybe use your speed and lethality to take this guy out. Like, but by the way, he's he's way he, he's a bad dude. You know, he he had a kill order. And like everyone, like several different characters are piling piling on to be like, oh yeah, totally kill him, totally just kill him. And Sveta's like, no, 
Yeah. Yeah. This is so important, I think, because, yeah, like our characters are bending over backwards to justify why her killing this dude would be absolutely fine. No, trust us. There was a kill order out on him. He's an asshole. It doesn't. He's fallen. Um, but she can't. She won't. And and I think once again, like Tristan, she's honest about this. I don't think I can bring myself to kill again. I'm sorry. She she is she confides in her team. She's honest with her team. She recognizes her own limitations and her own issues, and she shares them with everyone. And so they s- support her and say, okay, fine. That's, yeah. a, that's okay. We'll figure it out. Yeah. Um, hey, so the the they refer to it as the flag trick. They say, we might need you to do the flag trick again. So do you think that the, the flag trick that was set up arcs and arcs ago was explicitly setting up this moment or or was that just a you know something that was narratively lying around uh i think probably more the latter i mean it, i think it was cool but I, it doesn't feel like something that was like was done in that order yeah. it's still it's still neat that that he's able to just say do the flag trick instead of being like Sveta, why don't you use 100,000 of your tentacles at the same time and, and hit all of them? Like, we already know she can do it because we've seen her do the same basic thing. So I, just, right. I, and I, I like that as an example of shorthand achieved via good setup. Sure. That, I think that's the, a great example of good storytelling mm-hmm. that you you are so aware of the the moments that you've set up, even if they weren't specifically setting up anything, that you can, you can reach into that toolbox and pull them out anytime you want. Yeah. And that's yeah. good writing. Yeah, so so Rain here provides intel on the danger sense cape Arima. Victoria uh, heads in to to go go after Seer at first, uh, taking some wretch augmented swipes at him, but not making any headway. She's in the thick of things, and bullets are flying all over the place. And you know we'll we'll see her force field get knocked down several times by by gunfire. Um, this is all just kind of showing us how dense the the bullets flying is but eventually victoria changes tax and makes it her mission to take out arima so that so that then someone can actually take down seer yeah oh and matt when the when her shield got popped mm-hmm. uh the, the, my favorite moment in the chapter mm-hmm. uh seconds passed where the painful weight of the wretch was lifted the danger of the gunfire and powers around me paled in the face of the danger of the feeling it was deceptively exhilarating to have the wretch gone, no longer available at a heartbeat's notice. I knew it was just temporary and how temporary it was. But when everything else was so heavy, just that one deceptive moment caught me off guard. That's such a wonderful beat. Um, and like the implications and the complications around it, the wretch is this badass tool in a fight. It's useful. It protects her. Um, and she starts leaning on it more and more as things escalate here. But when it's gone, when she is the most exposed, she feels relief. And there's a pretty inherent contradiction in that, right? That, that, that this is this is almost a contradiction in terms that the thing that protects her also makes her feel trapped. The thing that she needs to feel useful also makes her feel powerless. And that got me thinking about how Victoria herself is kind of a walking contradiction, a person so desperate to distance herself from the past while also still being completely ruled by it and and that's 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 the central beat of our character that the wretch represents right this 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 contradiction between past and future battling it out inside this one person and i love that we see that on display once again here and just just we take a moment a beat where 
oh, it just she just got almost shot. And and we use that to explore Victoria a little more. Yeah, I, I almost read this as, you know, she, she uses the word exhilarating. And, and is it is it exhilarating just because this this this, you know, thing that she has negative associations with? has vanished or is it exhilarating because she's vulnerable and there's bullets flying and there's powers everywhere and and she's actually at risk now like is is it a is it a kind of adrenaline exhilaration or is it more of like a freedom from from this oppressive feeling exhilaration huh yeah i don't know um yeah i don't know either <laughs> uh, i mean I, I think i think it absolutely could be that mm-hmm. um the the danger of that feeling she mentioned mm-hmm. so um, it feels so good to be unprotected. Yeah, I want to chase that. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. It's a very complicated thing being con- conveyed there. Sure. So Victoria zooms in like some kind of literal avenging angel, come to bring justice <laughs> to these cowering demons. I mean, this is seriously some awesome imagery here. Mm-hmm. Um, but she hesitates to strike Arima, seeing how young she is. At this point, Victoria takes a bullet in her arm um, for hesitating, and despite going into shock, she now brawls with and takes apart all the remaining fallen yeah um yeah so she's just like seriously goddamn terrifying here (laughs) like she she slams into the ground so hard that she makes someone a distance away lose their footing like just just imagine having to fight her she's she's terrifying yeah she's full fuck it mode right (laughs) like she's powerful she's dangerous she's kind of seemingly abandoned the idea of the warrior monk temporarily like she's warrior monk gone avenging angel here to wreck shit um and and in this moment it's interesting because she compares herself to sveta momentarily she's like sveta doesn't want to ever hurt people again me i'll do it i just want to make sure i feel like it's the right thing to do yeah and and it is here so fuck it let's let's fuck up some fallen let's throw them in the air and then break their legs on my force field um yeah ultra violence going on here yeah slam someone into the hood of a car just yeah hard enough to knock them senseless which you know scott if you ask me to slam someone into the hood of a car hard enough to knock them senseless i'm pretty sure i wouldn't know like the difference between that and just like cracking their skull so Uh so Uh yeah i love that that whether it's her shard or just her brain is is channeling points specifically designed to make her angrier like this this like other thoughts flickered through my mind almost the same way that idle thoughts ran through one's mind while they drifted off to sleep these weren't restful thoughts though it was the people writhing on the ground the old conservative woman i've rescued it was the graffiti in hollow point i almost collapsed into that sequence of thoughts in a confused angry haze i didn't as I rallied, I felt my thoughts clarify with the images. So she almost like loses it entirely, but instead uses those images to to kind of focus herself into fucking shit up. Yeah, I, I think this this I like the subtlety of this beat of uh, it was it was the graffiti in Hollow Point because like what what strikes me what immediately jumps into my mind is the the graffiti that, that said something like this is how things are now. And and her saying fuck that yeah and that that was like a great like early character moment for her establishing who she is and to a degree what her conflict is going to be because she does not accept that this is how things are now and in fact you can yeah. read every character choice she's made in this story as saying no I do not accept that this is how things are now even though 
increasing evidence seems to be suggesting that this is indeed how things are now. Right. Um, and, and like you, you have to admire that though. You have to admire her, her, oh, yeah. her heroic, like holding the line. Yeah. But it, I mean, it is, it is pushing her to a place of, of more aggression and almost escalation. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there is, I mean, there, like the thing about this is the fallen are bad dudes. Like that's very clear. Like there's, there's no question here that the stuff that she's doing is hurting bad people to help good people. Mm-hmm. But she's at a point where she feels so useless. She feels so powerless that she's taking it upon herself to just go out there and wreck as much shit as possible. And, and I think this is important because we talked about Tristan is like, uh, I can't handle this. I need help. Sveta's like, no, um, I, I can't do that. Victoria just kind of takes off on her own and says, I feel powerless. I feel useless. I'm going to solve this. And yeah, you're right. That's commendable. She's, she's sometimes a hero is a person that, that refuses to move. Um, in the face of of a wave of awfulness but she's not alone she doesn't have to be alone and i thought that was interesting that that she she kind of just flew off on her own to do this yeah no that no you're right it's a stark contrast between these two moments of of her other two teammates recognizing their limitations and backing down from situations they knew they couldn't handle and her diving into a situation that she gets shot for, you know, yep. this is the this is the worst she's been injured in in the story by far. A gunshot wound is not trivial, uh, even if it's just in the arm. Yeah. Um. And the story has punished her for her lack of awareness of her limitations. I, I, I mm-hmm. read that exactly the same way you do. I like this beat. Uh where she, you know she's fighting she's fighting this person who has this like field where victoria can't advance on them and and she uh it says i did as i'd done when amy had pursued me after the barbecue i swung and i let the wretch hit the ground dirt and mud sprayed into the air and sprayed toward the cape with the beam um so i just i like this um the fact that she doesn't just describe the idea of like oh yeah i'm going to use the the dirt itself as a weapon she specifically references this moment with amy this this moment of pain and it's just it's tying in this this kind of you know tempo of of these these things that are bothering her and and eating at her mind are are like hammering on her right now and and so this this visualization of of this thing that she did after 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 the barbecue works its way into her her combat you know theorizing i I just like how that worked out yeah the people that say victoria isn't interesting really confuse me when I read parts like this. Yeah. Where like, like it, it, it's not an accident that she's thinking of Amy in this moment, yeah. even if she's not really focusing on that thought, right. but she, that she calls back to that. Yeah. Huh. I can't handle that. Yeah. <laughs> so imp takes out Arima using the opening provided by Victoria. At first imp snarks at her, but then shows empathy when she sees that Victoria is hurt. Victoria doesn't give her more than a couple of nods in response. Yeah, and I don't I don't want to read too much into this, Matt, so stop me if, if you think I'm going too far. <laughs> but throughout the, this part of this chapter, we've seen Victoria work herself very near a rage. She she summons her anger as images that flash by, and, and, and she in this moment, she picks up this fallen and, as you said, slams them against the car so hard to knock them senseless. 
And that's when Imp pops in and then tases that guy or girl and finishes the job, right? Yeah. Now, we know Imp is very good at reading things in people that others can't. Imp notices things. Imp is observant. She was the only one who noticed that paying attention to Taylor's bugs was like a, a window into her emotional state. Do you think it's possible that Imp saw Victoria here like on the verge of maybe going too far, maybe being just a, a tad too violent? Something, by the way, that old Victoria absolutely did do. Old warm Victoria mm-hmm. did did do that and stepped in and to de- de-escalate that situation before it go too far. Am I just completely grasping at straws here or is that something that, that could very well be possible? Uh, it's not something that occurred to me, but I can definitely like like imagine this scene from Imp's point of view as she's sneaking in and watching Victoria like a- apparently getting increasingly frenzied and thrashing and lashing out and push you know throwing people striking people slamming people and being like yeah i'm just gonna duck in here and i'm gonna tase this person and just kind of yeah, cut this just off to, yeah just to end this yeah. here before it goes anywhere else yeah i yeah. mean i i think that's a little bit of a reach but um man imp sees stuff yeah that's what she does i wonder what this battle looks like from imp's perspective because like you can't <laughs> see the wretch so like there's moments here where victoria like punches someone misses yeah and they still get punched in the face by the red yeah so like like people don't know what that is really even the people that understand her a little bit so that's got to look kind of crazy yeah right this is one of the many things that makes her terrifying is like you can't really get a bead on her power just by yeah. watching her fight you're like okay uh, short range extremely powerful telekinesis uh invulnerability as far as i can tell Although she still seems to dodge attacks, uh, I'm terrified of her for some reason. I can't put my finger on and flight. Yeah, okay. Like, like your your overall impression is just like she's um, she's monst- She's just like a monster. You can't beat her. Yeah, I have a technical question. I wonder if it's possible to be answered. Yes. Um, if she punches something with the wretch so hard that it's equivalent to like it getting hit by a bullet, would that cause the force field to pop? I feel like I feel like we've seen this scenario before, but now I can't recall when or where. Um, yeah, I don't know. No idea. Well, does podcast world? Do you know? I pose the question to you. Yes, we'll, we'll see how quickly podcast world answers. I'm sure immediately. Yeah. Um. So so this whole interaction with Imp highlights something to me that i think i've been missing which is that the only real reason we the readers or i perhaps <laughs> have been have been seeing the undersiders as villains anymore is because of victoria's antipathy for them specifically her antipathy for tattletale we don't see the undersiders doing crimes they they are like liaising with with hollow point but that's not really the same thing we see Tattletail bending over backwards to not do crimes and to warn the misfit toys away from bad situations. We see how chummy they are with the heroes in the subsequent scene. We see Foil and Parian just chilling with the good guys, and we see Vista cheerily waving to Rachel. Uh, just like the only, the only evidence we have that the Undersiders are still considered bad guys is the fact that Victoria just hates them so much. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. I, I like that a lot. Um, and 
Tattletail is very confusing, right? Because we know you're right that we do not see her doing crime, but we know she has like a pretty good grip on a large portion of the city. Um, but they are only bad guys in context of how Victoria sees them. Literally every other character we've seen interact with the undersiders so far has been like, Hey, how you doing? Yeah. It's good to see you. And these are all people that Victoria respects and likes like, like uh, Vista. I think, I think Vista happily waving at Rachel is one of the greatest moments. Cause like these are people that throughout the entirety of the last book found themselves on opposite sides on most things, uh, except when big threats came along. And now, uh, now they are seemingly buddy, buddy. Yeah. And Victoria doesn't really process that very much. Um, she just kind of sees it yeah. and, and, and deals with it. But she, she also was like, it's not like she's like refusing to work with the undersiders. She's just like, I don't like these people. Yeah. Oh, there's Rachel Lint. I don't like her. Yeah. She's also literally in shock. Yeah, that's pro- that's true. Probably fuzzing that, her thinking a bit. That is that is true. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So March gets told off by the heroes in the background, while others realize Victoria is injured and give her first aid. Yeah, and we see Parian and March like having a chat while Foyle watches from a distance. Right. Mm-hmm. Wonder what's going on here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um. We've kind of made the assumption that it's something to do with like the kill part of this whole kiss kill thing. Mm-hmm. What if it's the other one, Matt? Yeah. What if we got a Cape Love Triangle going know. on here? I don't, I don't know. That'd be interesting. It would. I think that might be what's going on. We'll <laughs> see though. Um, I, so I pulled out this bit just because. It's now my hobby to pull out things that emphasize Victoria's leadership qualities. Mm-hmm. So Narwhal is saying maybe in part. Uh, so, so so sorry. First of all, Victoria complains that she doesn't feel like she actually accomplished anything, and that it was all imp. And Narwhal says maybe in part, but there were a lot of fallen there that were focused on you, not us. Uh, she said in a tone suggesting she wasn't going to accept any dissent. She repeated the former. Thank you. I nodded my acknowledgement because saying anything would have meant having to acknowledge it when it didn't feel wholly appropriate. It was Narwhal being a leader and getting everyone in the right frame of thinking. So basically, like, I'm just pointing out that Victoria, like, recognized that Narwhal was doing a leadership judo throw. Yeah. And she was like, okay, fine. Like, I accept your leadership judo throw and I will go along with it even though I still don't feel okay about this. Um Yeah. even when she's you know having her bullet wound stitched up she's uh able to recognize this kind of high level you know interpersonal gambit but take the damn compliment vicky (laughs) jesus um yeah this is interesting though because we, we talked about how um she kind of in this moment of of powerlessness of uselessness kind of goes out on the rampage and and goes to beat all these people up gets shot from it and we see here that her reaction to this is uh, I didn't actually do that much. So maybe that's a good sign. Maybe the fact that, that she, she should not have flied out, flown out there on her own, risking herself because she felt so useless. Um, maybe that's showing that she's learned that because she still didn't feel any more useful here. And now she's shot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we can hope. Yeah. Fingers crossed. Yeah. So at this point, Capricorn actually suggests a retreat, but the others uh, with well being the loudest suggest this might be, the good guy's last shot to take out the fallen. 
Victoria basically agrees with him, pointing out that the uh, Fallen's usual stone wall of power synergies has been disrupted by this chaos. Yeah, this moment had a real feeling of ominousness to me. Um, we've watched this war kind of descend into chaos and death, that, that monstrousness and madness. We've watched our characters push to their extremes. Ashley and Rain killed some people. Chris is off doing... God knows what he's doing. Uh, Sveta was just asked to kill someone. Tristan can't even handle leading anymore. Victoria is shot and was a, a moment away from going kind of mad, crazy. And there's a moment when our characters say, hey, this is this is our chance to back down. This is our chance to walk away and live to fight another day, to, to de-escalate the situation, regroup, and, and maybe strike back from a, a position um, of a little more control. But just like Rain in the last chapter... The idea of leaving the fallen now means dealing with the fallen tomorrow, and our characters can't do that. They can't back down. And that has a feeling of, okay, that was your shot. That was your chance. Now what's going to happen? Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. It's, um, I feel like Capricorn has been this, this voice of almost sanity being like, this is, uh, this is too much. Like, I, mm -hmm. I can't handle this. I think we should back off like yeah and he's kind of right like victoria got shot yeah um the team's not doing too well guys yeah uh chris is is down an arm a bird arm uh <laughs> you know don't worry he'll eat someone and grow that back ashley ashley's just out of the picture now like their their team is not done done well and I mean, I, I get that I get the the argument that it's like, oh, but but this is this is their moment of vulnerability, and it's like, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know, have have a little bit of higher level self reflection and and realize that like, you know, your shards are for one thing pushing you to do things like this in the first yeah. place. So I don't know. I, I think also, I just consistently think it's interesting that that uh, Tristan is is like the voice of reason here. Yeah, you know how many battles have been lost because a side was like, this is our chance, and they overcommit, and yeah. it fucks them over? That happens a lot. Yeah, right, especially against, like, an entrenched defensive position, which is what the Fallen yeah. are. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. also, see, here's here's the problem. <laughs> I, I was convinced I was convinced at the start of this war that Weld was going to die, and now Weld is the one in this moment that says, no, we've got to keep going forward, and I'm like, fuck, yeah. that's if Weld's going to die. <laughs> I had the same reaction that that it was him that it was him doing it and victoria being like yeah because that way victoria gets to have extra guilt when something terrible yeah. happens to weld yeah hooray yay um yep so and then just to cap off that perfect note of ominousness the chapter ends with mama calling to her lost lamb oh yeah her she's uh she's back yep she's back so you know don't get too excited about having broken up their power synergies. Yeah. Hey, hey, Matt, you know who's probably like really pissed off right now? Who? Kenzie. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know the person who hates feeling left out? <laughs> She's been gone for a while. Yeah. I hope she hasn't peaked because. Uh, yeah, that would be not good. Would be, I mean, it's definitely justified. It's not like they're keeping her out just because she's a kid. They're keeping her out because her power is like the worst possible power to have in the situation. Sure. Yeah. Um. Is that explanation going to work work well for 
the little girl who feels like no one wants her around? I don't know. I don't know. Sometimes <laughs> sometimes we underestimate Kinsey. That's true. That is sometimes. true. We'll see. All right. That wraps up the first chapter of Arc 6 Pitch. Yeah. And which is a which is a name, Matt. Which is a name. So yes, pitch. So pitch as in pitch dark, pitch black, uh the 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 black color, but also pitch is a sticky substance that you step in and it traps you and and you can't escape. Just all yeah. kinds of connotations. Oh yeah. Do we have any other names? That's not not really. I mean, we have I was trying to find out what Arima was and all I can find is like many many video games and cartoons that use the name <laughs> which presumably all got it from somewhere but i couldn't find the original source which, which i thought was funny I'm, I'm sure i'm sure there is an original source i just couldn't scrounge it up yeah um i found it is another word for angra mind you which is the destructive spirit in uh zoroastrianism which i don't know what that is yeah I think I think I may have found that, and then I was like, "But it's spelled differently, so I don't trust that." Yeah. Anyway, well, pretty yeah, it's definitely the it's definitely the floating eye demon from Final Fantasy. Oh. I mean, let's just call it what it is. Okay, yeah, you're right. That's totally what it is. <laughs> All right, discussion questions. So uh, we've been asking a lot of plot and character centric questions so far, but this week we would like to shift the focus to the pros. This is something that we had always hoped to do with We've Got Ward. Spend more time on word choice, style, symbolism, examples of one piece of text serving multiple functions. So uh, the question this week is, what's your favorite short piece of prose from this week's reading and why? And I think when I say this re- this week's reading, I am gonna we're gonna be pretty open minded about what you want to pull out as long as it's within the last like few chapters, you know. Um, yeah, like if your if your favorite passages from like two chapters like more than two chapters ago just that's fine yeah oh, oh, <laughs> like, yeah or if it's from like you know six six dot two or six dot three or whatever like i i don't know i don't know what the release schedule is going to be the point is yeah. we're open we're open-minded about it so just just find it find it for us explain explain why uh you you love it and you know give it the real deep reading treatment absolutely and uh, that's all we got for you this week on We've Got Ward. You guys are all part of this show, so feel free to provide us with advice, questions, or thoughts on this week's reading. You can reach us via email at gotwormpod at gmail.com or on Twitter at gotwormpod. My personal Twitter is at scottdaily85, and Matt's is at zombiebabymordinamail. Zoroastrianism. Uh, <laughs> if you're not already subscribed to We've Got Ward, we strongly recommend you do so and never miss an episode. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere else in the world you can listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find this, all the other podcasts we do, and all of our writing essays, film, and TV criticism, and more at dailyplanetfilms.com. Um, we have a we usually promote some one of our other shows on this thing, Matt, mm-hmm. and the thing I realized today is that we don't talk about the book club on We've Got Ward very much. Um, Ironic. Yeah, we do. It is the only thing that we regularly talk about that is a book. We don't talk about the book club. We do a monthly book club here at the Daily Planet where each month um, our patrons will vote on a book. 
and then we will read it and we'll do a live stream discussion on the last Friday of the month where we talk about the book and we pull some slides from it and, and dive into it with real depth and and we'll interact with you guys in the chat. Uh, we do all that. So um, that's coming up next Friday, the 27th. I know it's the day uh, Avengers Infinity War comes out, but you probably don't have tickets to that anyway, right? So come hang out Friday night at 930 Central Time. PM, PM Central Time. Yeah, we'll be talking. What's the book again, Matt? Uh, the book this month is Robert Heinlein's "The Moon Is a Harsh Mistress." Yeah, I'm very excited about that conversation. And also, while we're talking about this, um, we need some more book choices for next month's vote. Basically, we have a form where you can click on the form and send us a book that you want us to read, and we will look through those submissions, pick five that we like, and that's what we will let our patrons vote on. So uh, please do that. I will attach a copy of uh, a link to that form in the show notes for this episode so you can do that we need we need more stuff so please do please do that yeah yeah uh, we always like to be exposed to books that we haven't really read or heard of so yeah uh yeah. yeah so yeah that's right and if you like any of our other shows or this show and you want to support us please consider donating to our patreon account patreon.com slash films you can donate a dollar a month or whatever else you can afford Supporting us on Patreon gives you tons of great bonuses like voting for the fan art contest, Q&A sessions, uh, voting on what book we're going to read for book club, accessing to live streams of our recording sessions like this one, and participation in our lively Discord chat. Also, special thanks to new patrons in including Planeteers Christian, Ginny, and Michael at the $1 level, Chauncey at the $2 level, and Xiaoyao at the $4 level, and to Captain Planet, Christy at the $10 level. Thank you so much, all of you guys. Uh, we really appreciate that. It's it's humbling and uh, really motivates us to do a great job at this stuff. Yeah, I it's it's amazing. Thank you guys so, so, so much. I know we say this every week, but I... I I, it's still incredible every week, yeah. so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna stop saying. Yeah. Um, we we appreciate your support. We are using the the funds that you so generously give us to to invest back in this thing that we're doing to make new fun stuff. We've we've bought new equipment. We've bought new software. We're planning all this new stuff that's coming, and I I am so excited. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Yeah, yeah. And as always, make sure you also go over to Wildbo's Patreon and donate to him as well. This is his world. We are just playing in it. And if you can't afford to donate right now, that's absolutely okay. You can instead help us out by heading over to iTunes and leaving us a rating and a review. You can be like, taking it easy, nine who gives us five stars and says this podcast goes into a deep dive of the best web serial on the internet. It's entertaining, educational, and altogether great. It's like talking to two of your best friends about something you all love. Thank you so much. Um, we are your best friends. And, uh, as such, I was wondering if you could pick me up from the airport next week. Oh, and, uh, I need some help, uh, moving. And then, uh, maybe you could like spot me some money for best friend dinner next week. Maybe. Thanks. Thanks, buddy. Yeah, that's a great compliment. No. That's I'm glad it feels like that because Yeah, that's what we're going for. Yeah. So Yeah. Alright, that's it for the show this week. Next week it's all arc six. Part one or two, Part one, depending one on what we decide. Five, the end. Mm-hmm.